0: Welcome to Behind the Stethoscope. My name is Dr. Joelle Bradley. This podcast is a chance for our local physicians from the Royal Columbian, Eagle Ridge Hospital, and all the community doctors in between to connect. Each show, you will have the opportunity to get to know someone from our community beyond their day jobs. Our doctors come from varied backgrounds, specialties, and experience, and are here with us to share their stories of who they are behind the stethoscope. Last episode, we met Dr. Charlie Chan, who is a palliative care physician and a colleague of mine that I've worked with for the last seven or eight years. He's kindly agreed to continue sharing his story of his journey with his chronic fatigue syndrome. Welcome back, Charlie.
1: Thank you, Joelle. And again, thank you for having me on the podcast. And I hope that my story is interesting enough for us to uh, take up two podcasts. So I'm very honored and, uh, and grateful for the opportunity.
0: So when we left off, you were saying that you had had your symptoms settle enough to have a few reasonable years. And then I imagine something happened.
1: Yes. So I was first diagnosed in 2004, 2005, ups and downs as we talked about in the last podcast, and was stable enough to return to family medicine work that did last a few years. And then in 2009, I caught another virus and relapsed all over again. The significant fatigue, brain fog, all the joint pains, neurological symptoms of numbness all returned and hit me like... A whirlwind just swept me up once more. And it was like being hit by lightning a second time. Because I think I had become complacent um, in thinking that maybe I had beaten it. But back to disability insurance, I went more off work time. This time, I felt like a failure. And up until that point, I had not considered myself a failure. But this time, I did it felt like I had failed. And because of that, I gave into it. And the months that followed the relapse or during the relapse is actually really all a bit of a blur. But during that time, I made the very difficult decision to actually leave the family medicine practice. I really did not think that I was being fair to my patients. And in addition to feeling like a failure, I think the predominant emotion was guilt. As much as I felt guilty about leaving my patients, I felt more guilty about being considered unreliable and undependable, which is words that I put on myself. Nobody ever said that to me, but that's what I felt. And I have to say though, I was also needing something else. I was not sure if family medicine was ultimately going to be the most gratifying medical field. If I ever was able to return to work, I thought that I wanted to go back to palliative care. It permitted me to to express myself in a more uh, meaningful and connected way. It was more resonant with who I was as a person. So all of those things combined made me make that incredibly decision, uh, difficult decision. And I think from an emotional point of view, I was also needing significantly more support from my colleagues that I didn't really feel like I was, I was getting. And to be fair, um, one particular colleague did really try to reach out to me. But I think, again, in my pickheadedness and my refusal to believe that I was lesser than, I rebuffed Um, his attempts to provide me with support. So as much as I didn't get the support that I needed, part of it could be that I pushed it away. And about a year later, this time, no investigator following me from the insurance company, I knew how to stand my ground and say, no, I don't think resuming my relationship with the people that tried to help me return to work the last time was um, necessary or at all helpful. And I just needed the time and they agreed. So I took the time that I needed. And in 2010, I started to feel well enough again to go back to work. This time I re-entered palliative care and started being a, the attending physician at a large hospice and you think that I would have learned some significant lessons by now, but nope, that overachieving ego persisted, and I still believed that I could return to my previous activities. And maybe I was influenced by having been called a bully in the setting of goals of, of returning back to running, and, and I kind of fell into that trap of wanting to prove everybody wrong and prove everybody right all at the same time i engaged with a personal trainer and started a fairly rigorous exercise plan luckily i wasn't working full time i was working about 0.6 fte and that probably was low enough for me to not crash and burn right away but boy, did I get into the best physical shape I had ever been in my life. And I ran half marathons. I actually managed to get fit enough to do sprint triathlons. And that was around the time after a year or so when you and I met at the Royal Columbian in 2013. I was very physically active. And the hours that I was working gave me enough reassurance, falsely, that I was doing okay, that I took on the consultant role at the Royal Columbian and stupidly, in retrospect, gradually increased my work hours yet again. And Charlie, I I
0: just want to interrupt. I I definitely hear you say you went into overachiever mode. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've always noticed about you, and maybe I'm just misinterpreting, but you get involved in life, whether it's work, leadership, teaching, art, like I find that you find everything so interesting and fascinating and like you just jump into everything because you have such a zest. So you're (laughs) maybe at that time it was overachieving, but I just have always seen you as someone who just has got to get in there and try it and do it for yeah. the opportunity.
1: No, I really appreciate that. Thank you for that, Joelle. And uh, I take that as a great compliment. And um, and I suppose the, some of the words that I'm choosing is more me laughing at myself in reflection, because I'm in such a different place now, seven, eight years later. And um, I, I tend to have two modes. I'm either on or off. And, uh, and, and the chronic fatigue syndrome and my relapses may be the most pronounced evidence of that. <laughs> it's like I'm either on or I'm totally off. And now I'm realizing that, yes, I find things interesting and I, I want to do my best and pour my heart into it. I can also do it in moderation. And, and that's some of the lessons that I've learned over the last few years. So during that time, when we first met, I was really reveling in the feeling that I, again, had conquered this, and that I was going to be back to my normal self, whatever that means, for the rest of my life. And in my notes here, I I am looking at some notes that I wrote down, I, I will quote my note. And my ego preferred being normal and healthy. I was willing to admit that maybe I was being a bully to her when I was reflecting back to my counselor, or at least belligerent. And I just needed some smartening up because here I was doing great.
0: And that's what I saw like very vivacious when I mm-hmm. first met you. And we, we were on different committees together and we were trying to fix and improve big problems in the system. And, and we were very successful and I just knew if Charlie was involved, things were going to work. And so it was a very big surprise when I first saw you experience your first relapse in our relationship.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that, Joelle. And I think that was probably around the time of 2016 and what I think triggered that relapse. And I'm hoping that it's going to be my last major relapse because I am in such a different place. But when I reflect back The summer of 2016 was so traumatic on multiple levels. What tipped it off was first the mass shooting in Orlando, Florida at Pulse nightclub in June of 2016, where 49 people were killed and 53 injured in in a place that was supposed to be a safe haven for LGBTQ people, my people. And that event rocked me to my core even though I was miles away from the location, I felt so saddened and angered and was really trying to figure out what it all meant. And around that same time, I did a home visit to see a patient in the community, not knowing at the time that his home was actually infested with bedbugs. And um, I got bitten all over my lower legs and forearms by these bedbugs and I Maybe the immune response to, to those bites caused my body to tip over again, along with all the emotional trauma that I was carrying at the time. But this relapse would yield very different results. This time, I was referred to an internal medicine specialist from the St. Paul's chronic pain clinic. And... He fully understood and continues to understand chronic fatigue syndrome, was up to date and current with the latest literature and evidence and management strategies for the disorder. And I will never forget the first time that I met him. And he said to me, Charlie, I believe you. And I wept in his office for probably a good five minutes because I hadn't heard that from anybody up until that point. So after suffering 12 years with a mysterious illness off and on, to finally have somebody who say that they believed me, to validate me in that way, the relief I felt is really quite almost indescribable. It, it felt like somebody was welcoming me home, and it wasn't a familiar home. It wasn't my old home, but it was a new home. It represented safety and understanding and acknowledgement of what I was experiencing. And more than anything else, that gave me power. More power than I had experienced any time else. More power than when I was at the fittest of my physical condition. More power than when... You know, I graduated from medical school. It it was something so extraordinary. And and again, I can't help but relate it back to me coming out of the closet saying that I'm gay to the people that matter to me the most, most empowering thing when they acknowledge and accept. That's what it felt like again. But the only, the other thing, not the only thing, the other thing that this physician also said was, I'm going to help you. And I think I may have shed a few more tears after he said that statement as well. And it was like, I was Luke Skywalker and I had finally found my Yoda, um, or I was Frodo and I had found my Gandalf. And and I, I thought, my God, finally, because after 12 years, finally, and in these epic stories, Aren't these mentor figures supposed to arrive much, much earlier in the journey? So I was kind of going, like, who flipped the bloody script on me, right? But I was so grateful. And he taught me about chronic fatigue syndrome, even more so than any of the literature that I had been reading, um, that it's also being called my object encephalomyelitis, an attempt to remove the stigma surrounding the label of chronic fatigue syndrome, otherwise known as the yuppie flu from the 80s and 90s. And that internationally, there were other people trying to even be more descriptive in naming this order. And one one such name is systemic exertion intolerance disease. And I found that really compelling, because that's exactly what I experienced. I have an intolerance to exertion on a systemic level. And that exertion can represent physical exertion. It can also represent psychological or emotional. And any combination of those things can actually tip me over. And I, when I heard that, I just remember me being on a busy ward and how much I would struggle when there were Bells and lights and announcements and nurses walking by. And I would just want to go and hide in a little room where the dictation room where I can actually quietly think for myself. And to a certain extent, it also explained why I was more drawn to home visits and quieter work. Um, as much as I loved working at Royal Columbian, I now that that it was the environment that was challenging for me because it contributed to that sense of exertion. So it, it made more sense for me to do something different like home visits. And the other tool that this physician provided was group education sessions. I enrolled in a men's group of chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And we learned together about what was going to be most useful for us to manage our lives, really. and. Ironically, what I learned in terms of the major pieces that would be helpful were all things that I had known and learned about previously. And some of it I was even teaching to residents. And it's a three-legged stool that I now use. Each leg, if missing, makes you tip over if you try to sit on the stool. One requires all three legs in order to sit properly on the stool. And the three legs represent pacing, cognitive behavioral therapy that I do for myself, and mindfulness. And you know, through our MDs for Wellness work, we had sessions on mindfulness. And I had taken courses on CBT, and I had counseled my own patients who were experiencing profound cachexia and fatigue Uh, with palliative care um, diagnoses uh, about how to do pacing. But I didn't know that I needed to do these things for myself. And I didn't know that I needed to do all these things all at the same time every day. And gradually from that, I really then started to get back to my new normal and learned that it wasn't about trying to fight the chronic fatigue syndrome, trying to push it away, trying to cu- be cured of it. I would love to be cured from it, but that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. And what I needed to do was learn to actually embrace it and work with it. And, and it was like, again, coming out to myself all over again, learning that the perfection that I had always expected of myself was really not realistic. And what I needed to do was be my best self, warts and all, chronic fatigue syndrome and all. And that began the process of true integration. The strategies that were employed um, were so smart and yet so intuitive that it's hard to imagine why nobody did it earlier. He not only held these group education classes for men together to share experiences, and and it was like almost a support group. He also held a class where my loved ones could come and learn about chronic fatigue syndrome so that they heard the words from an expert that this was real. And as much as my parents accepted what I was going through was difficult, they never really understood it until they attended that course. And as much as Tim has been extraordinarily supportive throughout the entire journey, it wasn't until he attended that course did he really kind of go, oh, okay. But it was also the ability and the opportunity to bear witness to all these other people in the audience with all their families and loved ones having gone through the same thing and to experience that shared kinship and experience. For them to also recognize that they weren't alone, which was incredibly valuable. For Tim to learn that he wasn't the only partner who has ever needed to support a spouse through something like this was incredibly uh, meaningful. Um, So I can not express just how grateful and appreciative I am. And then there were some medical things. He put me on some um, novel agents and potentially other supplements um, that I've tried off and on to at least see if they would help reduce some of the joint pains and, and other things. So it I, I, there's just the sense of trust that I have in being under his care. And for somebody to have that belief and that validation for me and for me to feel that trust, that ultimately enables me to experience what personal power I have in in being able to have agency all over again and um, and be able to, to kind of, like I was saying, integrate all of these aspects of me, including somebody who chronically suffers with something like CFS. And finally, able to let go of previous self-perceptions of what I was supposed to be and learn to st- to start to just be me in the moment here and now. And although I was starting to learn how to not shy away from telling people that I had something like chronic fatigue syndrome, to know that there is somebody who legitimately supports and believes and there is a community out there makes me braver and, um, and able to um, be in a place like today where I'm, I'm able to, to share the story and, you know, at the risk of sounding really cliched, I can honestly say that I can now celebrate uh, having chronic fatigue syndrome and the experience of what I've gone through because it's made me part of, uh, it's, it's a part of who I am now and, and has given me certain gifts that I don't think I would have if I had never gone through this experience Um, Because these tools of the pacing and the um, self-CBT and the mindfulness, they're going to be tools that I get to use for the rest of my life, not only for the chronic fatigue syndrome, but help me with work-life balance and really find joy in the activities that I do. And and maybe even be able to share these new skills with my colleagues and residents and students.
0: Charlie, would you mind maybe walking us through a random day of what your day looks like and what you're doing for self-care that symbolizes the the three legs of your stool.
1: Sure, yeah. I must admit that getting out of bed in the morning is still difficult because I love to sleep. And I probably need nine hours of sleep every night at the least. And if I get 10, that's even better. And in order to help me sleep, I am on Zopiclone. And as I transitioned to Calgary and met new family physicians, I've needed to explain to them why I'm on it. But again, with the support of my internal medicine specialist, confirming the safety and the necessity of it, I am on it and it helps me get a really good night's rest. Um, And I'm not fearful of becoming addicted to it. And I'm not ashamed to say that I'm probably dependent on it in order to function the same way that a diabetic may be dependent on getting insulin or else they might die. So I'm on that and I get a really good night's sleep. And when I wake up, every step of my activities in the morning to get ready for work becomes my mindfulness practice. And it's mindful brushing my teeth, mindful washing my face, mindful showering, mindful eating breakfast. Oh, before I eat it, it's mindful preparation of my breakfast. I love using my, my Vitamix and, and part of the meditation and the mindfulness is hearing that loud noise whir. And funny thing is my partner, Tim, made a shake for the first time in a long time, a couple of weeks ago. And when I heard that Vitamix were and I wasn't the one controlling it, it triggered something in me as in, oh my God, I'm supposed to be in a mindful state. And it was almost Pavlovian. <laughs> Even though we have somebody else running this stupid um, blender. So I love that I've now become conditioned to be mindful. And boy, isn't that a wonderful thing to be conditioned for, right? And then I go about my work. And I would have to say that mindfulness is probably a core part of the fabric of how I live my day-to-day now. There is this constant skill that I've acquired where I'm able to almost be kind of meta at all times and when I'm attuning to it or attending to it I can almost float above myself and observe myself in the moment and it's not dissociative it's actually it it's something that allows me to experience the moment even more deeply because I can experience it and analyze it almost at the same time. And I don't mean analyze in terms of you know trying to deconstruct or figure it out. I mean, analyze in terms of watch it and be really mindful around it. So that practice is pretty much throughout my day. And then there are moments where I'm particularly mindful, where I do, before I go to bed, do at least a 10 minute meditation, preferably 15 to 20, but I sometimes fall asleep. So- It only lasts 10 minutes, but that's not a bad thing. If I get a really good night's sleep out of it.
0: And how about the cognitive behavioral? Is that kind of managing your your thoughts and your reactions or what do you mean?
1: It starts with um, monitoring my emotions. And a few years ago, the Apple watch came out with the function where it'll remind you to breathe X number of times per day. And, and as you know, I love my Apple products, shout out to Apple. This, not, not a sponsor, but I'm sure if Apple wants to sponsor this podcast, you know, we might gratefully Joelle might gratefully accept. But uh, so when that feature came out, I realized that I don't need to be reminded to breathe because I had already practiced mindful enough, mindfulness enough that I was incorporated. But what wasn't quite incorporated yet was attuning to my emotions. So every time that my watch tells me to be breathe to breathe, I check in with my emotionality. And then I trace the emotionality to my cognitive um, functions, my thoughts. And then I practice asking myself, are these cognitions valid? Or am I falling into a trap of a cognitive distortion? And I very quickly have become good at drilling down what the true thought is so that I can validate it and then recognize whether or not the emotions are are a natural response to that. And if I'm noticing that I'm falling into a traditional trap of a cognitive distortion, like I need to be perfect, then I'm really able to uh, very quickly modify that thought so that I can spiral out of it into a more reasonable cogn- cognition, like I don't need to be perfect. So that becomes a part of my routine practice, but it's all because I'm reminded to check in with my emotions many times per day. I've set my watch to do that seven times per day. So because I'm doing that seven times per day, I probably do it even more now without the reminder. And then the final piece of the pacing, I initially needed to actually schedule on my day and draft it um, so that everything was written out and made sure that on paper, I wasn't doing more than what I could. But now that I more practiced at it, I don't need to have it be that explicit. I'm able to chunk my time and rest accordingly. And one of the things that I've learned is that I need almost equal amount of rest compared to exertion. So for example, if my workday is five hours of intense work, then I need five hours of intense rest. And one of the First things that my internal medicine specialist had written down on a piece on a prescribe on a prescription, I should say, was intensive rest therapy. And when he first wrote those three words down on a prescription for me, I looked at him and kind of going, "What the hell does that mean?" He goes, "That's your job to find out." So. That's the work of the pacing part is what does intense rest therapy mean for me? And for me, it means that I really need to unplug and find activities that are not draining, find activities that are replenishing and enriching and restful. So, you know, picking up iPad art is an example of that, or even watching stupid YouTube videos, if that's what I'm drawn to in the moment, and not criticize myself for it, not to to say, oh, you're just wasting time. It's not time wasted. It is actually intense rest therapy. So that would be an example of how the pacing combines with the cognitive behavioral therapy. Because if my mind starts to go, Charlie, you're wasting time, I can readily correct it. And go. Are you really, or is this rest therapy? And and then follow suit with the mindfulness practices every moment of the way, so that I get attuned to my physical sensations. And the other thing that I'm able to do now is, if I recognize early signs of joint pains coming on or feeling more fatigued than I typically am, I'm and the fact that I'm so open about what I'm experiencing and what I have with my colleagues, I will ask for time off and people are readily willing to support me. So it becomes a um, beautiful snowball effect where I empower myself. I ask people to keep me in check. I ask them for help and therefore they feel empowered to help me. And we just start to collaborate in my wellness. and I. I find that one of the reasons why I was so honored and um, willing to share the story is the more vulnerable and transparent that I am with those that depend on me, the more they're able to actually count on me. And that's an irony and a paradox that I don't think I would have ever learned had I not gone through this experience.
0: That is an amazing way of summarizing it because I am so grateful to... Have you as a friend and a colleague, and I have seen such growth in you in the past couple of years and and you're always there for me when I need it, whether it's to debrief something or helping with an education session. And I just always think, how does he have all the time in the world for me, whenever I need it? And I love how you describe it as a paradox. Mm-hmm.
1: And what perhaps you don't see, and now that i'm t- I'm sharing that with you, so you'll recognize it even more is after an intense thing that we do together. I'll be taking the equal amount of time to do that intensive rest and be okay with it. Even if it's watching really, really silly YouTube videos, which I actually love.
0: (laughs) Well, Charlie, I think we've come to a place where it's the natural conclusion of your story and it kind of leaves us with a lot of hope. And for those of us who don't potentially have a similar condition, I think there's a lot we can learn to improve our day and our energy level by attending to our three legs.
1: Yeah. And and I suppose the other thing that I might want to share is that we just need to continue to be kind to each other and kind to ourselves because what I've experienced is not seeable. And it's only until I share it will people really hear and understand. And so when I go about my days and people are behaving the way they're behaving, I now ask myself, Might they have something that's going on that's not seeable? And it allows me to interact with a much deeper degree of compassion and empathy and kindness. And then, yeah, if these three legs to the stool are helpful for anybody else, I'm always happy to share it and talk about my experiences further.
0: Oh, I can't thank you enough.
1: Thank you for this opportunity.
0: Again, it's, it's time to wrap up. So I, I deeply thank you, Charlie, for sharing your authentic story. It was pretty courageous to just be public with us, and I appreciate it so much. I'm also going to thank, as always, our producer, Nikki Thorpe of Bronick Consulting. This podcast is made possible from our local facilities engagement via the Doctors of BC. And as always, a special thank you to you, our listeners. We invite you to connect with us on Instagram and behind the stethoscope at yahoo.com. I'm going to try to see if I can procure some of Charlie's iPad art for our Instagram page. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you enjoyed our show and want to see it continue, please consider a donation. It's as easy as going to rchfoundation.com and donating with a note that says you want to have your $50 or so go to the podcast fund. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Dr. Joelle Bradley.